History is full of nameless contributors. Most of the people who have lived and died are not remembered. And I know that's not the cheeriest of thoughts, but how far back can you go before you don't even know the names of your grandparents anymore, or what they did for a living and where they came from? All those who have passed decades, then centuries ago, that have somehow culminated into everything that makes up the living world today. Some people are passed down in stories. Some are temporarily immortalized in black and white photos, with their fading names written in pencil on the back in your grandmother's indiscernible writing. Some are gravestones washed smooth by a century of rain. And some are a song. The man who this series is about is a man who has started to be forgotten in a lot of ways. His music is famous, but it never really brought him the fame he had wanted it to, or the recognition it should have. His contribution to music as we know it today cannot be understated. His songs strummed out on a 12-string Stella guitar, some of them over a hundred years ago now, have been given new form. They have been electrified and plugged in, passed down through generations of musicians who would get stars in their eyes when they talked about him. Musicians like Bob Dylan, Elvis, Frank Sinatra, Nat King Cole, Tom Petty, Van Morrison, The Beach Boys, CCR, Pete Seeger, The Grateful Dead, Tom Waits, Nirvana, The White Stripes, and The Red Hot Chili Peppers. All of them, and many more, have covered songs he wrote. His name was Huddy William Ledbetter. He was born on a farm in Mooringsport, Louisiana, in 1888, or maybe 1889. We know him now as Leadbelly. Woody Guthrie said it was the hard name of a harder man. His life was as epic as the music he produced, and he spent some of that life in prison for murder. His grandparents had been slaves, and by the time he was born, emancipation had only existed for 25 years. He spent his entire life in a world run by Jim Crow laws, and he would not live long enough to see his country become desegregated. His is a story of poverty, violence, racism, regret, fickle pockets of success, failure, anger, love, and a constant search of expression in a world that did not want him expressing himself. But he did anyway. Join me in learning about the fascinating life and legend of Leadbelly. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. Before I get into the story of Leadbelly himself, I need to give a huge shout-out to two authors that made my research for this episode possible. The main resource I've used for researching and writing this series is a book by Charles Wolfe and Kip Lornell called The Life and Legend of Leadbelly. These two traveled around the U.S. in the early 90s interviewing anyone they could who had personally known Leadbelly, including his living kin, as well as administrators of archives and museums that had access to his earliest works. They used primary sources, including the personal letters of John Lomax, 
and the biographical information Alan Lomax gathered from Leadbelly himself. If you're not familiar with those names, don't sweat it, they'll come up later. The book took Wolf and Lornell three years to write and research, and I couldn't have sifted through the legend and folklore surrounding Leadbelly and separate it from the truth of who he actually was to any great degree without their years of hard work and research. Though their book was far from the only source I used for this series, it was the main source of information I used for researching the personal life and career of Leadbelly. I highly recommend their book if you want to get an even more thorough look at Leadbelly, as well as the evolution of American folk music and blues, and how that tied in with social and political movements in the 20th century. Again, it's called The Life and Legend of Leadbelly. Separating who Leadbelly was from the legends that grew from his story, legends that spread wildly, even in his own lifetime, was not easy. Legend is a slippery thing that morphs and grows in all directions, and getting a firm hold on the truth of some of the aspects of his life is probably impossible by now. Part of this is because it's hard finding precise information about an individual born in the late 1800s, especially if that person was a minority, or if records of their birth and life never existed in any great capacity. Leadbelly grew up in a time where nothing was digitized, a time when much of what you could know came from word of mouth, which could change from telling to telling, or articles in books, if you were literate. It wasn't until the 1920s that radio broadcasting would provide another platform for information. Like I've said, Leadbelly was born in 1888, and most of his early life exists only in the written accounts of the stories he told, or the memories of those who were there with him as he grew up. And all of those people are dead. So there are some things about him we will never know for certain. For instance, he was prosecuted for murder, which we will get into later. And the details of exactly what happened on the night a man named Will Stafford was shot to death on a dirt road in Texas depend on who you ask, and at what point in his life Leadbelly felt like giving you the details. Details he often would change himself. Even his exact place of birth and the year he was born are debated. Leadbelly said he was born on January 15, 1888, but never said where exactly. His grave marker lists his birth year as 1889. Some researchers have argued he may have been born in Lee, Texas, but both the 1900 and 1910 census state his birthplace was Louisiana, and that his birth year was 1888. His parents were farmers. His father, a man named John Wesley Ledbetter, had moved from North Carolina down to Louisiana after the American Civil War to a place called Caddo Parish, about 15 miles northwest of Shreveport and near Caddo Lake. The rural populations surrounding Caddo Lake made a living mainly fishing, farming, or working in the timber or cotton industries. When oil was discovered and companies moved in to explore the area and set up refineries and pipelines, many flocked to the oil industry for jobs in one of the boomtowns that began popping up all around Caddo Lake. But Wes Ledbetter was not interested in the oil industry. His dream was to own his own land and work his own farm. Not an easy dream to realize. Wes was able to rent some land, reaping cotton, and shipping it to Shreveport. 
but it would be years of grueling manual labor under the hot and humid summer sun of Texas and Louisiana before he would realize his dream of owning his own farm. Leadbelly's mother was a woman named Sally Pugh, a half-Cherokee, half-African-American woman born in Louisiana. She and Wes married in 1888, and she worked the fields with him. She was described as being extremely hardworking. The couple tried hard to have a big family, but conceiving was not easy for them. In the 1910 census, it was reported that Sally gave birth to four children, but only one, a son named Huddy, had survived. <coughs> The Ledbetters were both in their 30s when Huddy was born, and they would never have another child that survived childbirth. But their house was always full. Huddy's extended family was large, and visitors were frequent, often staying for days at a time, displacing Huddy to sleep on a pallet on the floor. His parents wanted more children, so they adopted a young girl who they named Australia Carr Ledbetter in 1892. Huddy was their only son, and he was, even by his own account, doted upon and spoiled by them throughout his life. He said later his parents were too fine to him, that they never physically reprimanded him, and said, quote, "...wasn't nothing my mama and papa wouldn't do for me. Wasn't nothing they wouldn't buy me if I wanted it." His parents were often criticized by other family members for not reprimanding Huddy enough saying he was spoiled and too free-willed for a child allowed to do anything he wanted. And as you'll see later, they would do anything for him. While Huddy may have not been the target of violence in the household, there is no doubt that he was witness to domestic violence on several occasions. His father could be a violent man, and there are accounts of him beating Sally when he was angry or things didn't go his way. Huddy would say later, quote, my daddy used to knock my mama down if she disagreed with him, and I would go and stand under the shotgun on the wall until they would stop. This environment of domestic violence was no doubt traumatic for their children, and it would make a lasting impression on Huddy, who would later go on to express himself violently on numerous occasions. There is at least one report of violence from Wes outside of the home as well, when Huddy was about five years old, his parents had managed to scrape enough savings together to move the few miles across the border to Texas. Wes had made some sort of partnership with another man. The details of the partnership are vague, but it was an arrangement that was to financially secure Wes a hold on his own piece of land. For reasons now forgotten, the partnership failed and Wes assaulted the other man. Huddy later said Papa had to beat the man up pretty bad but no more details were given, at least that I could find. Needing to re-establish himself financially now, West secured a position sharecropping for a man named Henry Sims, a successful and wealthy African-American man who owned almost 4,000 of his own acres near Cotto Lake. Eventually, West and Sally were able to secure enough savings to buy their own land, 70 acres of it, at $2.50 an acre. But the hard work wasn't over. The 70 acres were wild and uncleared. Wes and Sally had to build a house on the land, a small log cabin. Huddy would later talk about going to sleep as a child, then waking up in the night, seeing brush piles on fire, dotting the darkness with flickering flame from his parents who were still out working long hours into the night, clearing the land. 
Huddy learned to work hard early, as young as six. He learned to ride a horse so he could go fetch supplies like coal oil for their lamps from town, a five-mile ride away. He learned the manual labor needed to run a farm without the benefits of machinery or even electricity. In 1896, Huddy started going to school. It was a two-mile walk each way through a thick forest of pines. Huddy was eager to learn, and he was a good student. Later accounts by his schoolmates described an intense young boy who seemed aloof, reserved, was never interested in playing with the other children, and kept to himself. According to the Family Justice Center Alliance, these are all characteristics that can be observed in children who come from abusive households. In childhood, Huddy wasn't prone to starting conflicts, but if bullied or confronted by others, he would waste no time in defending himself which usually led to physical confrontation. He learned at a young age how to use his fists. Huddy stayed in school long enough to learn to read and write with efficiency. He was 12 or 13 before he decided to leave, and his parents didn't object. Back then in the rural South, an eighth grade education was considered adequate for a farmer's son. But more time out of school meant more time helping on the farm. Even though Huddy was considered spoiled by his relatives, he didn't back away from hard work. The labor was intense, especially during the sweltering summers with their thick, humid days and biting mosquitoes. Even Huddy's young cousins would come help with the cotton harvest. Every helping hand made a difference. Cotton was chopped in the spring, picked in the summers, and taken to the gin house where it would be baled. Each bale of cotton weighed up to 575 pounds each, that's over 260 kilos. It took four or five people just to lift one bale of cotton onto a wagon. Huddy was large for his age, he always had been, and he was strong. His strength was noticed, and soon he gained a reputation as a hard worker, his mother bragging he could do the work of two adults. Physical labor was something Huddy was used to, his cousins too. As soon as a child was old enough to wield a hoe, they were helping out on the farm. One thing that set Huddy apart besides his huge frame was how particular he was about the way he dressed. The overalls, red bandana around his neck, and brimmed hat were normal dress for someone doing manual labor at the time. But Huddy always made certain that his overalls were starched, ironed, and cleaned. He never wore the same pair of overalls two days in a row, because he wanted them to be fresh and perfect every single day. He even wore polished black shoes out into the field. Leadbelly always preferred to dress well, and he always would, later on in his life when his manager insisted he wear prison stripes while he played in order to capitalize on the fascination of northern audiences and his unusual backstory, this would become a huge issue. Audiences were fascinated by the life Leadbelly was about to lead, and murder sells, so once Leadbelly garnered a reputation as a criminal, the sensationalism of his story is what his manager would try to emphasize, because that is what he believed audiences wanted. I'm getting a little ahead of the story here, but Leadbelly's taste for snappy dress was something he had from a young age. But it wasn't only his size, his work ethic, and his dress that set Leadbelly apart. He was, even as a child, a gifted musician. He started making music at the age of two. We remember him as the king of the 12-string guitar, and that would become his main instrument eventually. 
but Huddy could play anything you gave to him. When he was a child, he would sit in a small rocking chair on the farm. He was still too small for his feet to touch the ground, but he would play the mandolin and the accordion as he rocked back and forth over the wooden floorboards. He would hollow out twigs he'd find on the ground, whittle finger holes, and make his own flutes. Music was a part of who he was before he could even string more than a few sentences together. And he could sing, too. That barrel chest of his could ring out a song through the cacophony of any suki jump or house party where he sang. When he was seven, his uncle came by mule from a trip to Mooringsport and gave the young Huddy a windjammer. This was a small button accordion and was the first real instrument Huddy had been given, and by morning he could already play a song. Eventually, Huddy begged his parents to buy him a guitar, and of course they relented. This was sometime around 1903, when the guitar was gaining popularity in the South. He stayed up that entire night, plucking the strings, becoming familiar with the frets, the skin on his fingers shredding into what would become thick, lifelong calluses. That first night, he learned his first song. It was called Green Corn, and was a popular favorite at dances and parties. It's a song about moonshine. If you're not familiar, moonshine is a very alcoholic drink, usually made from cornmeal, sugar, yeast, and water. It's clear in color and has no aging requirements and can be around 150 proof, or 75% alcohol. Taste-wise, it's fairly disgusting. Some people like it, but it tastes like a hot garbage fire. Green Corn was a song Huddy would play for audiences for the rest of his life, and it sounded like this. As you just heard for yourself, he learned how to play the hell out of that guitar. This episode is sponsored by SaveTheChildren.org. Save the Children believes every child deserves a future. In the United States and around the world, Save the Children works every day to give children a healthy start in life, the opportunity to learn, and protection from harm. They deliver lasting results for millions of children, including those hardest to reach. They do whatever it takes for children, every day and in times of crisis, transforming their lives and the future we share. 
Right now, the coronavirus is the biggest global health crisis of our lifetime, and it threatens at-risk children in every way. COVID-19 has already left many children without caregivers, out of school and exposed to violence and exploitation, and child poverty is rising. With your support, SaveTheChildren.org can help children in unsafe households and help support distance learning in the face of school closures. A donation of just $5 can make a difference. $5 can buy a baby's first book, providing comfort and inspiring a lifelong love of learning. $5 can also provide a nutritious breakfast and lunch for a child who usually relies on school for food. $50 can serve 10 hungry out-of-school children a nutritious breakfast and lunch. So check out savethechildren.org slash savekids and make a difference today. Now, back to the show. Today, we don't generally see any band without a guitar, but the banjo and the fiddle had been much more popular in the South in Leadbelly's time, and the guitar had only just started to see a surge in popularity. This was for a couple of reasons. One, the modern flat-top acoustic guitar as we know it today has only been around since the mid-1800s. Stringed instruments have been around for millennia, and the guitar as we have it now is the product of the evolution of a long line of stringed instruments. As the guitar was reshaped, given more strings, made larger, and given steel strings, the delicate melodies played on the classical guitar were replaced on flat-top acoustic guitars by brighter, louder, chord-driven music and fundamentally changed the way the instrument was played. Two, the guitar was becoming more accessible. Companies like Gibson were manufacturing guitars that people could actually afford. Good luck affording a Gibson today, though. In 1897, Sears and Roebuck followed suit, and you could get a nice guitar for around six to eight US dollars. That'd be the equivalent of around $240 today. So they still weren't cheap, but they were affordable enough to allow the guitar to see an explosion in popularity. Guitars were making their way into the hands of folk and blues musicians, and they were changing the sound of music. Leadbelly had no shortage of people to play with. Relatives and friends were always eager to play, and he learned not only the guitar, windjammer, and the mandolin, but also the harmonica, the fiddle, and the piano. That's six instruments we know of that he could play with ease. Music was his favorite thing, and it wasn't long before he began booking gigs. He started playing paid gigs for audiences around 14, he played at dances called Suki Jumps, where he'd play and dance until around 4 a.m. Leadbelly was being influenced by a huge variety of music that would all play a part in helping him find his unique sound. Blues, folk, gospel, ballads, string bands, and the diversity of sound that sent Suki Jumps dancing into the early morning hours all had their influence on young Huddy. He was regularly being offered paying gigs now, these included not only Suki Jumps, but also gigs at house parties, saloons, and oftentimes white drugstore owners would play him to play on weekends and nights in an attempt to draw a crowd to their stores. At the saloons where he played, Huddy was often offered beer. At the time in Louisiana, there was no legal drinking age. Age regulations on drinking varied state by state, 
and even those that had them often had a clause stating the age limit could be waived if a parent approved. For many 14-year-olds, being offered free beer would have been considered pretty fantastic. But Huddy just couldn't bring himself to like it. But he didn't want to lose face in front of the bar patrons offering him drinks. Thankfully for him, he found an ally in a woman named Early Bennett. Early could tell Huddy couldn't stand the taste of beer, but also knew the young boy didn't want to appear naive. So when someone handed Huddy a beer, she'd stash them away from the prying eyes of the crowd. Eventually, Huddy started bringing sugar from home to the saloons. He would stash it in a piece of paper and hide it in his pocket. Early would take him behind the bar and he'd pour the sugar into the beer. Apparently, this helped him choke it down. And I love this story because it shows a different side of Leadbelly than we will see shortly. He grew up a sweet kid, one that kept to himself, didn't start fights, had known the brutal side of manual labor from the age of six, could play any instrument you put in his hands, and couldn't stand the taste of beer. But the environment Huddy was in was one of violence, poverty for most of the black community he knew, and racial tension in a segregated world. In the early 1900s, the parts of Texas and Louisiana where Huddy found himself resembled what we would think of when we would think of a wild American frontier to a great degree. Physical assaults, knife fights, and shootings were extremely common, and the more Huddy was exposed to this, the more the impressionable youth began to respond to the world around him with violence. Huddy developed a quick temper. In a world where violence was an everyday possibility, Huddy began reacting out in an increasingly aggressive way towards that environment. And this wasn't a world Huddy was only starting to be exposed to. If you remember, he repeatedly saw his father lashing out violently at others and even saw his father abusing his mother on multiple occasions. When a child is exposed to violence at a young age, especially regular occurrences of domestic violence, trauma is the result. According to the Family Justice Center Alliance, such trauma can have a lingering, lifelong impact on brain development. It can affect a child's ability to develop healthy relationships, connect with others, learn, and can manifest into things like mental health issues, behavioral problems, and violent reactions to situations. This is because when a child's brain is in a state of stress and fear, it remains in a constant survival state. It's switched on to crisis mode. According to KVC Health Systems, the experiences we have in childhood, both positive and negative, impact how neural connections are created in our brains. The more a child is exposed to violence, like Huddy was, the more connections are made in regions of the brain connected to fear, anxiety, and impulsiveness. This can be overcome through the implementation of stable, supportive relationships, positive experiences, and healthy coping mechanisms, which can then strengthen the neural connections responsible for reasoning, planning, and behavioral control. But Huddy would never get the chance to either learn any of these healthy coping mechanisms, nor would he ever have stability without violence. This would greatly affect him for the rest of his life. Huddy would cope through womanizing and through violence. This would begin in earnest at the age of 14. He would come home often with torn and bloody clothes. 
Once he came home with his mouth hanging open from a severe gash cut across his jaw where someone had tried to slash his eye out. And they nearly hit their mark, too. Night after night, he would come home in similar states. So Wes, Huddy's father, decided that the best thing to do for a teenager who was regularly engaged in violent altercations was to give him a gun. When Huddy turned 16, on his birthday he was given a horse and a pistol. It was a protection special colt, small enough to hide in a holster beneath his coat. Only a few weeks after receiving the gun, Huddy found himself in a situation where he decided to use it. He got into a fight at a party with another boy over a girl. He pistol whipped the other boy, and after knocking him to the ground, Huddy straddled him, aimed the gun at the boy's head, and pulled the trigger. It was a moment of rash, emotionally driven violence from a boy that had never learned how to properly control his anger. In an incredible stroke of luck for both of them, the gun misfired and the boy broke free and ran. Huddy fired two shots at the boy's back, but missed both times. The family of the other boy demanded Huddy be arrested for the attempted murder, but the sheriff was a friend of Huddy's father and let him go with a warning and a $25 fine. Talk about a slap on the wrist. It was Huddy's first run-in with the law, but it would be far from his last. Despite having learned his son had just tried to kill another person, Wes let Huddy keep his gun. And he kept using it. A short time later, Huddy saw his girlfriend through a window, sitting next to another boy inside of a house. She and the other boy weren't doing anything, just sitting and talking. Huddy fired his gun through the door. Luckily, he was a terrible shot, because he failed to hit anyone this time either. In his rural farming community, where word traveled fast, Huddy started to develop a bad reputation. Huddy was popular, with many of the women who heard him sing and play, and he never seemed to turn any of them away, even when he was in a relationship. His first real girlfriend was Margaret Coleman, a farmer's daughter, and it wasn't long before she became pregnant with Huddy's child. This caused a huge scandal in the community. Margaret gave birth to a daughter, but the baby died in infancy. Huddy was willing to marry Margaret, and her parents were pushing for it as well, but Huddy's parents were not willing to give him permission. They had big plans for him and didn't think the girl was good enough to marry their son. Even though he was increasingly violent and now had caused a teen pregnancy, they still idolized him and did nothing to curtail his behavior. He was learning that he could get away with any trouble he got into, and this only seemed to reinforce Huddy's poor decision-making. Huddy kept seeing Margaret, and a year later, when she became pregnant again, giving birth this time to a healthy baby girl named Arthur May, he denied he was the father. This caused an even bigger scandal, and Huddy's reputation in the community was quickly becoming unrepairable. Margaret's family relocated to Dallas after the scandal, where Margaret had to raise their daughter on her own. Huddy was 16 now, his reputation was ruined, and he was anxious. He wanted to explore the world outside of his rural farming community, 
a place that seemed increasingly claustrophobic. He decided to move 19 miles up the road to Shreveport. 19 miles may not have been much in distance, but Shreveport was a different world than the one Huddy knew. He would be on his own for the first time there, playing music and picking up jobs wherever he could. At the time, Shreveport had a population of around 17,000, and it was growing every day. It was the center of the cotton trade, had hotels, restaurants, and people from every walk of life. It was the perfect place for young musicians to test themselves. The city council had sectioned out a particular eight-block area of the city to serve as a red-light district, and this is where Huddy would find himself for the next two years. This was the center of nightlife and the center of the city's crime. Stabbings and shootings were common, and Fannin Street was the center of it all. Within a year of sanctioning the red-light district, there were 40 brothels, a number of gambling houses, an opium den, and plenty of saloons in need of a musician. Here, Huddy was exposed to an even wider variety of music. Blues, ragtime, early jazz, everything that was, was on Fannin Street. Here, Huddy would learn many of the songs he would later include in his shows. Eventually, he would have an arsenal of over 500 songs. Many he would write himself, some were popular songs of the time, and some were variations of his own on songs that others had written. Eventually, the lure of Fannin Street would fade, and Huddy would return home to the farm. Although two years had passed, his reputation was still tarnished and had even been made worse, since he was now associated with Fannin Street, which was considered dubious at best by the rural community who still remembered the two pregnancies of Margaret Coleman. Although his parents were thrilled at their son's return, it wasn't long before Huddy moved on again. He would later say he was, quote, banished away from the community. After having been driven out of town, Huddy started traveling. He rambled through Texas and Louisiana from Dallas to New Orleans. For two years, he played in bordellos and bars, at parties, and any venue he could. Throughout his travels, he soaked up an increasingly diverse repertoire of music. His understanding and skill on the piano were greatly influenced by the early sounds of jazz and creole he heard in New Orleans, and the deep roots that had been evolving for years into what we know as the blues today. Unfortunately, we have no real idea exactly what the musicians that had so inspired Leadbelly at the time sounded like. They were playing one generation too early for us to hear their sound but we can get a feel for what they would have sounded like in later recordings that would inspire future generations of musicians forevermore. The jazz and diverse sound of the South had a big impact on Huddy. Here's a sample for you, recorded in 1923, well after Huddy had left New Orleans. It's a song called Canal Street Blues by King Oliver's Creole Band. By the way, the trumpet player in this recording is a 22-year-old Louis Armstrong. Here is what some of the music that inspired Huddy probably sounded like. Thank you. 
That sound from almost a hundred years ago was just one snapshot of an enormous, diverse canvas of music that was exploding throughout the country. In 1920, almost a decade after Lead Belly had started traveling, the first classic blues recording was done by African-American vocalist Mammy Smith. It was called Crazy Blues, and it sold over 75,000 copies in its first month, greatly escalating the popularity of the genre as well as black artists. People argue over whether this should be considered the first blues recording, but most tend to agree Mammy Smith gets the credit for being first. I will play that song for you in its entirety at the end of this episode because it's not only history, it's a hauntingly gorgeous song and holds the elements of the early blues that so influenced Lead Belly's music. On August 10th of this year, that recording will be exactly 100 years old. The first jazz recording to be released was called Livery Stable Blues. It was recorded in 1917 by an all-white band known as the original Dixie Jazz Band. The fact that the first jazz recording was done by an all-white band echoes the racial tension of the day, because jazz and blues both have their roots in southern African-American communities. This was the time of Jim Crow. The Jim Crow laws were a collection of state and local statutes that legalized racial segregation. These laws lasted for nearly a century and were put in place to marginalize African Americans by, among other things, denying them the right to vote, find employment, or get an education. By the way, it wasn't until 1965 that a law securing African Americans the right to vote and outlawing voter discrimination was passed. That's not that long ago. Everything in Lead Belly's time was segregated. Train stations, water fountains, restrooms, cemeteries, neighborhoods, public pools, restaurants, hotels, everything. If you were black, you couldn't even walk into a building through the same entrance as a white person. Those who defied Jim Crow laws were subject to arrest, fines, jail time, violence, and death. Both audiences and music venues were segregated. It was even illegal for black and white musicians to play in public together. White musicians were quick to use the sounds of early blues and jazz for their own music, and some record companies wouldn't even consider recording black artists until they realized the monetary potential of what would become known as race records after Mammy Smith's Crazy Blues was so successful. Called race records at the time, these songs were marketed for African-American consumers and performed by African-American artists, artists that were usually not paid much for their work. Some of the greatest jazz and blues artists we know today had their music labeled as race records, artists like Big Bill Brunzi, Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, and countless others. And the blues was about to take off. The origins of the blues is mysterious. It didn't just pop up one day, invented in one place by one person, but was an evolution of sound, the earliest of which was cultivated on southern plantations by black slaves and their descendants. It was an amalgamation of African spirituals, chants, work songs, and the unique sounds brought from Africa, forming what would be the most influential genre of music that has touched almost every other genre of Western music since. And it, along with the musical soup that was being stirred in the southern United States at the turn of the 19th century, is what gave us Lead Belly. 
Throughout his travels, Leadbelly continued to live a rough and tumble life. He drank, he slept with countless women, and violence continued to be a part of his life. But in 1908, Leadbelly caught a particularly nasty STD. We don't know exactly what it was, but we know he became so ill he went all the way back home to his parents' farm. He was terribly sick for six months and even hovered near death several times. He was eventually treated with something called Lafayette's Mixture. This was a concoction invented sometime during the American Revolution and was named for the Marquis de Lafayette. It was used to treat a number of illnesses, but was mainly used to combat gonorrhea, and it's believed that this is probably what was causing his illness. Whatever it was he had, it nearly killed him, and that scared him. For the first time, he began to really think about his mortality, and his behavior changed for a time. He went to school for a year and a half at Bishop College in Marshall, Texas, one of two all-black colleges in the area. They offered degrees in music, theology, and liberal arts. The school has no records of him ever attending, but this may be because Huddy would have had to register at the grammar school level because he only had an 8th grade education at the time of enrollment, and the school didn't keep records for grammar level students. Either that or his schooling was one of Leadbelly's yarns he liked to spin. You'll see later that he often embellished stories, or even changed them totally from telling to telling. But it is very possible that even though no records exist, he did attend college for a time. He even, under pressure from his mother, began attending church, singing in the choir from time to time. Though this didn't last very long. Huddy was never interested much in religion, and his brief association with the Baptist church would be his only real attempt at engaging with a religious institution. He never finished his degree. He quit, he claimed, because he fell in love with a woman named Aletta Henderson, known as Lethe by her family and friends. It's not clear where she and Huddy met, probably sometime during his travels, and they were married on July 18, 1908. Lethe was two years younger than Huddy, a Texas native and one of six children. She was a farm laborer, like Huddy, and both of them picked up work where they could get it. Huddy remembered her as a hard worker, and she worked in the fields beside him, asking him to sing while they picked cotton or plowed fields. Leadbelly would later boast that he could wear out two teams of mules a day, then dance all night, all while, quote, seeing after the women. From that, you probably gathered that he was not faithful to Lethe. And despite the scare he'd had from his STD, he soon went back to having lots of anonymous affairs. This escalated in the winters after the cotton season, since Huddy and Lethe would move to Dallas seasonally when the farm work dried up. Lethe would take any odd jobs she could, and Huddy would bring in what he could through playing whatever gigs he could find. He often could be found playing in an area called Deep Ellum, it mirrored the raucous elements Huddy had found on Fannin Street, and there were no shortages of gambling halls, juke joints, or brothels, and the music scene there was exceptionally exciting. It was in Dallas that two important things would happen for Leadbelly. One, he would meet the now-legendary blues musician Blind Lemon Jefferson, and two, he would finally get a hold of his first 12-string guitar, the instrument that has now become synonymous with Leadbelly. 
I wanted to conclude the first episode of the Leadbelly series by ending it with the murder charges Leadbelly would face, or at least his first attempted escape from prison, because who doesn't love a good cliffhanger? But to do that, I'd probably have to keep you here for another half hour at least, and I've learned that most listeners prefer episodes that don't go much over an hour, so I'm going to end this particular episode here, but I will be back with another in the Leadbelly series in two weeks. I don't know how many episodes this series will take yet, but it'll probably be at least three, maybe four. I'm going to let Mammy Smith end this episode with that legendary recording she did in 1920. But before I do, I want to thank Meg for becoming my newest patron. Thank you, Meg. If you'd like to support the show for as little as a dollar a month, you can do that at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. As a patron, you get access to an exclusive feed which includes sneak peeks about future episodes, patron-only content, and some free stickers. And you also get a good helping of my undying gratitude. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can do that at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. And until we meet again, my dear rambling stars of podcast land, go make some history. Now, here is a 100-year-old recording of Mammy Smith singing Crazy Blues.
Jesus.